Welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, men's and boys' issues, and more. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our guest today is Dr. Ranjana Srivastava. Dr. Srivastava OAM is an oncologist and an award-winning author of some seven books. She's published internationally. She's a broadcaster and a Fulbright scholar who works in the public hospital system. Her most recent book is called A Better Death, Conversations About the Art of Living and Dying Well. Ranjana, welcome to Dads on the Air. Thank you, Bill. I'm so pleased to be here. So, Ranjana, as a practicing oncologist, you've described your professional life as revolving around dying. You get the job of telling patients they haven't got long to live, sometimes when they think they've just got a pain in the stomach. Does this make you worry a bit more about your own aches and pains and perhaps those of your family? Well, perhaps I should start out by saying that not all my job every day is about death and dying because certainly cancer survival rates continue to improve. So even compared to the time that I started training and now, there are a lot more good news stories and a lot more people who are alive and well. So that's the great part of my job, to see these advances. But, Bill, you're absolutely right that a large part of my job also involves giving people news about a terminal illness and helping them navigate the process of death and dying. So the question of whether that makes me more conscious of my health and well-being. So I think, I think a job as an oncologist can certainly make somebody more anxious, but I would like to think that the major thing that I take away from my day-to-day job is to be grateful for my health and to be grateful for how I am because more than many other people, I see how quickly life can turn. You may have had that conversation with a patient already today, but when you do have to have those bad conversations, has it got any easier over the 20-odd years you've been doing this? Yeah, that's a good question, and I get asked that quite a lot. And my answer always is that I hope it never gets easier, because if it gets easier, then I worry that I become complacent. Because no matter how many times I have had this conversation, and, and, you know, over the course of 20 years, I've obviously lost count, uh, it's always a new conversation for an individual. And so, you know, the slight sense of anxiety or even panic or dread, rather, that a doctor should feel when delivering such life-changing news to the family and to the patient, and, you know, sort of a little bit of sweating over the brow to say, well, how am I going to do this? Because this conversation will be remembered by the family, by the patient for the rest of their lives. How do I get this right? How do I do this well? So I, I think that you become more practiced at these conversations. You learn to pick up nuance and you learn when it's important to be completely honest and transparent when you require some more diplomacy but I, I have stopped thinking and expecting that the job should be easier. You've said that many doctors couldn't do this work and then there are others who say they couldn't do anything else. 
Is courage perhaps the main requirement for, for putting yourself in that sort of role? I would say, Bill, empathy. Mm-hmm. I think empathy is the most important characteristic that I would look for in an oncologist and the one that I always try to keep at the front of my mind. I think there are many, many medical practitioners who are far more courageous than I am. I think of my surgical colleagues and the sorts of things they do that that I would turn green at. But I think to become an oncologist and to accompany people through this difficult time of their lives, because no matter what kind of cancer you have, uh, simply a brush with the term cancer can be life-changing. So I think that um, empathy is really important. I'm sure that being in this field has developed your communication skills and contributed to making your book such a, a wonderful read, but uh, what is your greatest hope for your book, A Better Death? I think the greatest hope that I have for my book is that people are, people read it and that people are not afraid to read it. And I think that somebody once asked me, who is this book for? And I would like to think that it's for anyone who has ever contemplated the meaning of a good life. Because it's really not just a book about dying well, but half the book is devoted to living well and what that means and what I have seen that to mean. Because I think there is a great relationship between people who have lived well and people who go on to die well. And perhaps this applies when you're living well equally as when you you want to die well, but there seems to be... a a need for a sense of control, and perhaps that leads to more acceptance if, if you feel you have some control over the uh, over that process, that final process. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, control is a natural thing we all want to have, and unfortunately, when you are ill, uh, there are various shades of that control, and there are areas that you cannot control, but there are areas that you absolutely can control. And one of the things I hope to do with my book is give people a sense of empowerment, that there are certain things, their dignity, their sense of gratitude, their sense of love or devotion, or a sense of innate purpose. Those are not things that doctors and nurses need to control. They are very much things that we control in our own lives. And it's important to remember that because I think it can help dilute some of the powerlessness that one feels with sickness. I note that in the subtitle of your book, you talk about the art of living and dying well. Is is it an art and is it something that perhaps people can readily learn? Well, I'm amazed when I look at my own patients and I do think that it's very much an art. And I guess I wrote this book uh, because I am always left admiring the, the sorts of people I see. And the, sto- the book is full of real life stories of patients whom I have met. And I think, wow, you know, they've, they've got this right. They've got this right. They are dying, but they're dying with peace and equanimity. And they exude kindness and gratitude. And, and how do they do this? So, yeah, I think that these are skills that sometimes, well, I think we all possess many of these characteristics, but we need to be reminded about how to employ them in our day-to-day life. So I guess you wouldn't agree with the poet, I think it was Dylan Thomas, who uh, told his father that he should rage against the dying of the light in his poem. Uh, you would see it more 
more beneficial to everybody if you have the acceptance and, and perhaps go with it? Well, I mean, look, I, I think there is a place for inquiring, for aggressive advocacy, for asking questions, for pushing boundaries. And, you know, medicine would be nowhere if people had not done that, doctors hadn't done that, and patients hadn't done that. But I think that there does come a point, and I, my book is really about sort of the end phase of life, the twilight of life, where, unfortunately, I see a lot more pain and suffering as a result of sort of that raging, um, as opposed to the, the dignity and acceptance that can come from reviewing one's situation and thinking, well, is, is there a time when we should accept our mortality? Because we are so poor at accepting that, you know, mortality is a universally human condition. Uh, I have a cousin who's a surgeon and he told me some years ago that he didn't believe in telling people about their new life expectancy because um, it was uncertain and in fact you know the doctor himself might walk under a bus on the way home but I think this attitude has changed now and, and people are more willing to give that sort of prediction aren't they? Well I think giving a prognosis continues to be a fine art. Uh, certainly it is not absolutely correct, and it's very difficult to predict on an individual basis. I mean, you could say, broadly speaking, on average, people with this kind of condition live for this long. But it is true that in an individual instance, it is very difficult to predict. Having said that, I think that part of one's clinical experience as an oncologist or as a doctor is looking at lots and lots of people and learning from those people. So I do feel that part of my job and indeed my duty of care is when people say, and I had this conversation just this morning incidentally, when people say, how long does someone have to live? The answer can't necessarily be, I have no idea. Mm. I think we do have an idea and we need to be nuanced about what we say and how we say it and explain our reasons. But I think we can sometimes do people a great disservice by shutting off that question at all. Because behind that question of how long do I have, most of the time there are really important things that people want to take care of. You know, there may be a last holiday, there may be last wishes, they may not wish to be in hospital. And so I think if you absolutely refuse to even counter that, that question about how long do I have, you may end up actually not helping people, although that's what your intention was. So do you think a patient should always be told? And I suppose, is there a limit on that? If, you, if it's, say, over two years, you might think, oh, well, there's probably no point in saying it. You know, the, the older I grow in medicine, the more I think there is no never and there is no always. And it's really important to understand that the human body is much, much smarter than we think we are. And the human body has ways of doing things that continue to amaze us and delight us and, and flounder us. So I start off with the premise that the, the conversation between a doctor and a patient needs to be one where there is trust and where there is rapport. And so not every single of my patients wants to know how long they have to live or how they're doing, but many do. So part of 
a good conversation between a doctor and a patient is being able to assess how much does a patient want to know, what is the right time to tell the patient, who else needs to be available, and so on and so forth. We're speaking today with Dr. Ranjana Srivastava about her new book called A Better Death. Ranjana, we might just take a short break now and uh, a song, a bright and happy song, which uh, you've picked for us. I wonder if you could tell us which one you've, you've chosen. Well, yes, so I have young children who have just discovered the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> so we have been playing Life Goes On in our house, which is something I used to listen to as a child. And uh, when I was thinking of a song, my husband suggested that since my book is about death and dying, it would be a wonderful accompaniment uh, the life goes on, oh bloody, oh blada song, to, to this. And I thought that was a great idea.
And that was Obladi Obladi by the Beatles, specially chosen for us today by our special guest, Dr. Ranjana Srivastava. Um, we've been talking about her new book called A Better Death. So, uh, Ranjana, we were just talking about uh, patients being told that they've got this uh, life expectancy, which perhaps they weren't expecting. Um, do many patients manage to outlive those prog- those prognoses? Well, it depends on who is prognosticating, what their condition is, so how accurate we are. So a couple of interesting things. It is said, and, and there has been some evidence, that the closer you are to a patient, as in the longer you have known a patient, the worse you are at prognosticating mm. because I suppose you are close to that patient and you want to believe a more optimistic version of their prognosis. I feel that in in my own experience, the way that I describe prognosis is I will talk to patients in terms of uh, whether they have days to weeks, weeks to months, or months to years. And I feel that that is sufficiently informative as well as broad that people have time to reflect, to put their things in order, etc., one method you describe in the book is the is a surprise question. So if you ask the doctor, would you be surprised if this person were still alive in six months, 12 months, whatever? And it seems to be a way of uh, focusing the, what the real extent of the, uh, the lifespan is. Yes. So that surprise question, when I first came across it some years ago, it surprised me too. And mm-hmm. it's actually a really sort of elegant and simple question, which says when you are looking at someone who has a chronic illness or a serious illness, would you be surprised if this patient died in the next 12 months? And if the answer to the question is, no, I would not be surprised if this patient died in the next year, then it is really a signal to you that you should be initiating a conversation with the patient about what matters and goals of care and how they may wish to look at the end of life. And the good thing about this question is that when it was asked, its accuracy uh, was seen even when, so when doctors asked this question, but also when nurses and allied health people, such as physiotherapists and occupational therapists, etc., or social workers, nurse assistants, physician assistants, asked this question in their, in their mind. So, I mean, all of us play a different role in the hospital system, but I thought that it was a good way of thinking about how we each serve the patient best in our capacity. Now, you discourage using some language in connection in this area, um, such as you know someone is battling cancer or they're they're fighting against cancer. What what is the problem in in uh, promoting that? Do you think? Well, I think for the longest time, and at least at least as long as I have been an oncologist, and much longer than that. Cancer has always been perceived in terms of a war, you know, the war on cancer, the battle with cancer, uh, the moonshot initiative, etc. And while I think that the intention of this has always been to eradicate cancer or to conquer cancer, so as to speak, what we have certainly learned is that cancer is not one disease and cancer is actually a very ancient disease. And it will continue to evolve in, in ways and forms that will surprise us. So part of the issue with using these analogies of war and battle is that when people die, 
there seems to be a feeling perhaps that they lost the battle or that they did something they didn't fight hard enough and i think that's actually unfair because i don't think anybody comes into this illness thinking well i might as well just not bother there are very very few people like that most people do want to be well they want to be well get rid of their disease etc i i would hate to see them judged if they became unwell somehow thinking that if only they had had a more rousing spirit or if only they had done this and that they could have fought the cancer they could have fought it off so i think it's an analogy that often doesn't serve our patients well but also i think it's an analogy in the media that um, perpetuates this myth that all cancer can be conquered because i do think it leaves both doctors and patients sometimes feeling that that they have failed so you've mentioned that uh, a cancer diagnosis or some life threatening illness like a stroke for instance it focuses the the mind on on what they want to do with the rest of their life and perhaps any long-term projects and they can concentrate on a legacy and all those sorts of things but what do you say to someone who really doesn't have any major unfulfilled project or someone who is for example just gone to work every day and between work and family that's his life or her life what would you say to someone in that situation when you have to give them this sort of news so you know one thing that i'm very struck by is how many people who describe their life as ordinary are actually anything much more than that they're anything but ordinary and and i think you know there are many many people that i encounter who are extraordinary for just doing the things that you have said they're bringing up a family sometimes under very difficult circumstances they have helped their kids through an education they've stayed home they have, they have been a stay at home parent and they have managed the house and managed the children and so on and i really feel that those things and being a parent myself and being a worker i think those things are not to be sneezed at so i think we just have to look hard enough to realize that ordinary people also do fairly extraordinary things and one of the things that that's increasingly emerging in my world is how many people are caring for elderly relatives uh disabled children disabled relatives and really giving so much of themselves to make sure that someone else's life is better for it so you know those people leave a legacy as well it's just that that sort of legacy we tend not to celebrate as much as the people who win awards or write books and so mm-hmm. on so i think it's a matter of looking at people and looking at our own lives through a different lens and saying you know we we all make a difference by being in this world and do you think people accept death easier when they're older or perhaps when they're they're a part of a religious group does that make approaching death any easier ah uh, that's a that's a really interesting question so one might think so but i don't see that necessarily i think that the innate thirst for life doesn't necessarily go away just because we are old and i have met plenty of elderly people who have been very unaccepting and unhappy about their mortality and i have met heartbreakingly young people who have this amazing acceptance and equanimity of the inevitable that just floors you so i think that 
rather than age and sort of thinking that with age comes this kind of wisdom, what I have seen is it's really the person and their thought process and how much they're willing to contemplate their mortality. So that's the age question. Religion. Can religion be an anchor? Well, one might think that religion can be an anchor, and certainly for many people it is. There are many people who will say to me that they are dying and they are in anticipation of a better place, uh, whether that's heaven or their God or whatever that is. But on the other hand, there are people who can be very disappointed and let down by the fact that their God or their divinity could do this. And when there is no rhyme or reason to, you know, there are people who will say they have led an incredibly healthy life and how could their God allow this to happen to them? And in that instance, religion can be a great disappointment. So look, I'm all for spirituality and religion as an anchor, but it's certainly not necessarily a protective factor for all of us. If someone in in your life has this condition where they've got a limited time to live, what what would you say is the best thing you can do to help that person? Oh, look, there are... There are many things, and hopefully I've outlined them nicely in my book, but I, if I had to pick a couple of things, one thing I would observe is that terminal illness is a condition associated with great loneliness. I think many of us in, in society are simply not comfortable talking about death and dying and talking to people who are terminally ill. We feel very awkward. And so many of my patients, young and old, feel that at that time of their life, they feel a little bit abandoned, they feel lonely, and they feel let down. So I think if there was one take-home message that I would like to give to people is that if you know somebody who is unwell, who is in the last phase of their life, see them, be around them, sit with them, talk to them. And if you are worried about what you will say, it will come to you if you spend time with them. And sometimes it's the simple things, you know, their dog still needs to be taken for a walk and they might still enjoy the smell of roses in their garden, but they need somebody to to take them out. They might still want to talk about things that are happening outside of their illness, but no one wants to engage with them. So asking people what they want, not being afraid to say, despite the illness they have, what are some of the other things that make them human is really important. And we're speaking today with Dr. Ranjana Srivastava about her book, A Better Death, which actually, I think, has a lot in it for all of us. Um, Ranjana recommends taking a stock of your life and, and see what you're doing, what's important. And I think you don't want to get to the end of your life before you, you start doing that. We've reached that. Unfortunately, we've run out of time because this is such an, an important and a fascinating topic. I'd just like to say that we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. If you'd like to go, listen to this show again or any of our shows, you can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and send us an email, and we'll be in touch. And Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. So it just remains for me now to give a, a special thank you to our guest today, the author, Dr. Ranjana Srivastava. Ranjana, thank you very much for being on Dads on the Air. Thank you so much, Bill. That was excellent. And we'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air. 